Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ramon Harvey, Aziz Foundation Lecturer in Islamic Studies at Ibrahim College in London, and author of The Quran and the Just Society, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2018. The Quran and the Just Society by Dr. Ramon Harvey tackles a topic as big and meaningful as the title of the book suggests. What is justice? What words does the Quran use to explore the meaning of justice? How did the social context of the Quran exist in its time as compared with later time periods? To what extent does the Quran give specific guidance for realizing justice? And to what extent does it give more general principles? Dr. Harvey treats these questions and others as he guides the reader through his erudite, yet accessible and clearly organized monograph. He draws smoothly from numerous modern and pre-modern thinkers and engages closely with the Quranic text throughout the book. The extensive glossary also aids the reader in making sense of the material. Given the broad relevance of justice in the Quran to any number of fields, the book should interest not only Islamicists and Quranic studies scholars, but also political scientists, scholars of exegesis more broadly, and even a general audience. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Ramon Harvey. Hello, Dr. Harvey. Thank you so much for joining us today for New Books in Islamic Studies. Um, Hello, and thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you about your book, The Quran and the Just Society. And our tradition here on New Books in Islamic Studies is to ask authors a little bit about their intellectual autobiography before we talk about the book. So could you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in Islamic studies and then Quranic studies in particular? Um, Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I think one of the uh, most important things was um, uh, conversion to Islam, actually. Um, I was previously interested in philosophy um, and uh, I didn't find the answers I guess I was personally seeking in sort of pure philosophy, which, you know, I uh, studied at degree level. Um, and I, did, I found the answers that, that I wanted in Islam. Um, but then that sent me um, uh, to sort of continue studies in Islamic studies after that. Um, and I developed quite broad interests and became particularly uh, fascinated in uh, in the Quran and also uh, other sort of disciplines and subjects. And uh, interestingly, I eventually sort of have come full circle back to kind of philosophy uh, as well. Um, but sort of now filtered through kind of my uh, 
confessional approach in my uh, sort of Islamic studies as well. Mm-hmm. And what about in terms like undergrad or graduate school? What were some influential books that have informed your scholarship in particular ways? Yeah, um, well, um, as I, I guess we might come on to more, I'm, I'm, I was uh, particularly uh, influenced by um, uh, uh, in the in sort of in the Arabic tradition, um, uh, Al Maturidi's Kitab al Tawhid. Um, uh, which is um, a kind of important theological text, an early theological text, and I, you know, it's a very, very difficult book to to, to read and understand. And so I found it as this, this, this still is this great enigma to be sort of unravelled. And I would sort of try to read it a bit in in graduate school and couldn't really get far, but was interested a little in the PhD a bit more has come up, and it's kind of an ongoing interest. Uh, also in uh, Tafsir kind of studies, um, uh, Maturidi's got a very interesting um, book as well, but also uh, Razi and uh, his Tafsir al-Kabir. Um, this was influential in uh, my in my sort of PhD uh, and, and sort of in the scholarship that went into the the, the book in a, in the early stages. Um, and I think the reason for that was that Razi is such an interesting thinker in terms of his ethical appreciation, his theology, drawing also from the whole exegetical tradition. So I found him just a really thoughtful uh, thinker. And then in the um, academic uh, sort of sphere, uh, you, know, you know, some of the sort of classic works that I found very useful were people like um, uh, actually Watts, uh, William Montgomery Watts, his Muhammad at Mecca and Muhammad at Medina books. I, I think they're absolute classics in kind of Sierra studies um, in the academy and so much kind of social thinking there. And there was a, and I, and I think that, you know, there was a period when obviously they were very, very influential, and then maybe he seems like that's in the 50s, it's a long time ago, but I think they still stand up as major works that should be consulted and used. Uh, he just kind of summarized so much of the kind of uh, sources uh, and, and also interpreted them. And then uh, Fazl Rahman, of course, um, very important for his kind of ethical thinking, various works of his. Um, Mohammed Draz, um, particularly in the, uh, the translation uh, of the moral, called the moral world of the Quran, um, which was originally a French, he wrote this as a French PhD at the Sorbonne, and then he, uh, it's been translated into Arabic and into English. And so um, I read the, tra- the, actually the English translation was what I read, and I found that very uh, interesting. And then finally, um, uh, Izutsu, with his classic uh, ethical religious concepts in the Quran, um, and just his whole way of sort of semantic analysis um, is just a major sort of influence on some of, some of my methods. So those gives you some sort of impression of some of the major people. Yeah, it, it's cool to hear you articulate these these names. And I think one of the many positive highlights of your book is that you get the sense that you're thinking about this from a lot of different angles. And so it, it makes a lot of sense to hear that you have these diverse influences in like really meaningful ways from different time periods. And that's all, I think it's also cool you describe um, Maturidi as, as an enigma uh, so you're, you're informed by an enigma, which I think is cool because it means like we're still being challenged, right? Even when we're producing books and stuff like that. So what, what about influential mentors? Are there people that you've, you've worked with that have had a particular impact on your work? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would like to name two major figures um, that have been really important to, to my sort of development. Um, so I think the first person is um, Professor Abdul Halim of SOAS. He was my um, supervisor uh, for the PhD. I also studied with him at the master's level uh, on his um, uh, Quranic, Quranic studies course. And 
the thing about uh, and also I've like pretty much read everything he's he's sort of written and so on and 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 you know extensively engaged with his translation, which I think actually is a major work. In in he doesn't tell you all the moves that are going on behind the scenes, but if you read it carefully, you get a sense of his kind of tafsir as well. Um, that's sort of implicit there. And so, I mean, just, um, you know, I would say just his kind of approach to to this idea of the theme of the, the chronic theme, how to kind of go into a theme and explore it and, um, you know, do that in a, in a way that's very sensitive to to the uh, to the tradition, but also engaged in the kind of modern ac- ac- academy. And then, of course, you know, he's got the Journal of Quranic Studies that he established, which I've, you know, I've published in. The, the conference that he runs every uh, two years. So just in, in many ways, he's been a kind of someone who's been a mentor for me, who, you know, has been instrumental in kind of getting me off the ground in my scholarship and, and all these things. So I've got a big debt to his work and to his sort of help and support. You know, he wrote the foreword to the book um, and it goes on. So uh, that's one person. The second figure is um, someone who is also... He is a, a, a doctor and was an Oxford academic for, for a long time, but he's also a traditional sheikh, and this is um, uh, uh, Dr. Akram Nadwi. Uh, and he is a very interesting um, scholar, uh, particularly in Hadith studies. So, you know, I studied um, with him a number of different disciplines uh, uh, and also um, particularly kind of uh, Bukhari and Tirmidhi, which is, you know, two major books of Hadith. And he's informed me into kind of the Hadith methods, the kind of, the classical Muslim scholarship on on history uh, and, and many other things, and so I benefited a lot from his 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 instruction and his sort of um, uh, discussion, and and I, and and as well as his um, sort of great knowledge in in, in sort of multi, multilingual knowledge, um, he's also got a very kind of open and critical mindset to sort of thinking about um, about issues in the tradition, and and I've I've taken a lot from his kind of whole approach to to things as well. So I I think those two figures are kind of in different ways have been very uh, influential. Well, cool. So something you said leads to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. And so you mentioned that Dr. Nedwi has his foot in these sort of two rooms of academia and uh, traditional scholarship, right? However we want to define those lines. And you you get at this issue uh, in the beginning of your book and you address this question on like is scholarship on the Quran objective? And you don't ask it in just that way, but I wonder how, how would you respond to that question? Is scholarship on the Quran objective? Yeah, I mean, my uh, understanding uh, or my approach, I guess, that, that has developed through writing the book and through my ongoing studies is that um, is that absolute objectivity is, is something of a myth. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's something that obviously will be around, um, you know, from different points of view, from from a kind of traditional scholarship point of view. It may there may be some idea like that also from a from a kind of contemporary academic view. Um, I think uh, um, uh, uh, an issue that I, I, you know, that is can be problematic is that in some of sort of older academic Quranic studies, there's this idea sometimes that sort of a, a Western non-Muslim approach may be more objective. Uh, and I think that 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 um, you know is 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 problematic. Um, I think now many scholars are becoming more thoughtful, and they are understanding that 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 everyone has some kind of contingent um, background, you know, and and that everyone has certain assumptions, and that really what's interesting is to, and in my uh, point of view, most fruitful is that we lay our cards on the table and we say these are my assumptions, these are, these are my uh, uh, sort of this is my methodology, this is my theory, and then where do you go from there? And you can agree or disagree. So it's more about um, being honest about about our 
subjectivity, I guess. And not to say there is no, there cannot be truth, but just that, you know, I, I think that, you know, that we, we, none of us are uh, who are studying these texts have an absolute window to, to for, you know, the divine mind or to the, the absolute truth of them. And we have to just do our best effort with, with the tools we have at our disposal. Um, and so I try to um, mm-hmm. um, put this forward, even in my teaching, um, I try to sort of, in my, I, I teach advanced Quranic studies uh, at Ibrahim College, and, and also I teach at Cambridge Muslim College in Quran and Hadith studies. And what I try to do with students is, and they're mainly, you know, or exclusively at Muslim kind of seminary students, is I try to, to sort of teach them um, or, or, or let them realize that, you know, there, there is, there's these both sets of, of premises and assumptions that need to be unpacked. The assumptions of the tradition and of the you know exegetical tradition and so on, and also the assumptions you're going to find in in, in academic scholarship of various persuasions, mm-hmm. and just trying to clarify them and, and give them the tools to kind of m- negotiate around, and that's where you can get interesting arguments and interesting scholarship in all of all types. So um, mm-hmm. you know I think that, that that that's important. I think there's there is a big difference between consistently working from your premises and sort of contradicting them due to some kind of expediency so i think we all can can recognize something some a scholar who's inconsistent a scholar who you know doesn't stick to their own agenda or their own approach or you know makes errors or these things i think or have problematic assumptions that that don't that don't stand up for whatever reason but i think that's a big difference between that and you know trying to say there's some absolute uh, uh objectivity that we can reach in any particular way Mm-hmm. And that's related to, uh, I think, a general theme of the book, which you uh, make explicit at certain times, is that the Quran has, you know, a lot of different ideas about justice, for example, since that's the topic, and that it it invites the reader to think about these terms in particular ways. And so I think it's really interesting how you, you look at the Quranic rhetoric, and not just what it's saying, but how it's trying to persuade the reader. So if we could use that as a jumping off point to talk about the main themes of the book what so like yeah how does how does the quran define justice let's let's start off with that big question what is justice in the quran yeah i mean i think it's interesting that um on the one hand the quran uh, and as you're saying um you know has this rhetorical register and 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 it challenges its readers and it speaks to its readers so the quran i think doesn't fully define justice it, it's more that it calls its audience to be just and expects at least the initial uh, audience you know um you know of its time uh, of revelation you could say um to sort of just understand kind of what that is and then at the same time the quran will supplement that with various rules or commandments or, or you know or explanations um but i do think i do think also the quran calls the readers to to think deeply and to reflect and to you know and to and to try to puzzle things out as well um and so that's why i think it's so fruitful to kind of still be trying to think about this idea of justice in the quran even so many centuries later in terms of how i would define it i guess i mean i uh, i do the, i i kind of quite early on i think in the introduction i sort of say there's three main ways um that or three levels that, that one could approach the idea of studying justice in the quran one is kind of virtue ethics approach to look at the that how how can the individual be just right and the second would be a sort of theological ethics to say well you know what does it mean for god to be just in the quran and what's the relationship between god and human beings in in in, that, in those terms and the third is the social ethics how can humans be just to each other and and what i basically say early on is they're all valid 
they all come into my story a bit, but the main one I'm focusing on is the social ethics level. Um, so I kind of scope it in that way. So I think there could be a, equally a completely different book that looked at some of these other levels much more closely, but that's not what, what I did. And that's why obviously the title is what it is. Um, and I think within that, you know, I came up with this definition for social justice in the Quran and, and this definition, you know, it, it's kind of, kind of keeps, it kept on being refined and I, it was longer and I managed to kind of pin it down as much as I was able by the, by the time the book was published. And so, um, what I actually say is that, uh, uh social justice, um, um, and I, and this is for me, this, and maybe we can come on to that, um, is, is the, uh, is the, is the condition or the ideal condition of, of the wisdom of God's writ uh, that meets the scale of moral value. And so obviously that needs unpacking. So what I'm basically saying is um, justice is a condition of society that is aimed for by the underlying principles of the divine law. And that these principles of, of the divine law, of the divine objectives, um, or Sharia even, um, are in agreement with a natural state or natural law that is also kind of, that's been created in the world. So I'm kind of, um, and I think that's an important idea for the book and uh, something that developed was trying to, in a way, read the Quran through a sort of natural law theory while acknowledging that because it's the Quran, it's obviously not just about natural law. It's also this divine law that's being revealed. So uh, I think um, all of this can come together. And I guess that that's some of the sort of sort of definitional theory that then I try to sort of um, deliver the details of that and explain that through kind of these sub themes uh, um, of different sort of aspects of social justice in the Quran. Yeah, and I want to ask you more about this idea of natural law and how that relates. But could we first? Could you first distinguish just explicitly between qist and adl in terms of how those are like keywords in the Quran that you talk quite a bit about in the book? Yeah, sure. Um, when I first, uh, I remember something interesting. When I first uh, sort of started to look into this whole theme of justice in the Quran right at the beginning of my PhD um, I was coming up with all sorts of sort of funny directions and, and you know interesting side routes and I remember uh, uh, Professor Abdul Halim uh, saying to me one thing you just need to do is you need to look up all the words the Quran uses for justice uh, and it's just a really obvious point and but I you know it wasn't it wasn't what the way I was kind of thinking of first approaching it and I didn't do this for about six months and I did all sorts of other things and then I came back to realize that that was exactly what I should have been doing uh, and uh, something when I when I did do that something I discovered is that um, many tafsirs basically treat this word qist um, as a synonym for adl so both so both uh, and, and what that means is sort of gen- as generic words for justice so adl is the more famous kind of word for justice and qist is this other word that also can have that meaning and so many uh, tafsirs will say adl huwa qist you know adl you know or qist huwa adl or, and they'll normally do it that way around. They'll normally say that qist basically reduces to adam. And I, and I kind of felt, well, if the Quran is using this other term, surely there's a meaning to that. And so although it is true that um, it is true that the, the, that, uh, they can sort of both generically mean a sort of general justice, I, I kind of came to the conclusion through sort of reading the different passages um, is that adult tends to be the equitableness of an individual. Right. And, and, and also the, the, the sort of verbal forms that are associated with this. And then the pist and the verbal forms associated with that tends to be more an objective standard of, of, of sort of societal justice. So when I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the just society, I'm actually in my mind thinking this is pist, even though if someone were to sort of translate the title of my book into Arabic, they probably wouldn't reach for a pist as a word because Adel is the more famous 
Justice Wood. So, um, but I found that this is quite an important distinction. And, it, and although I think it is implicitly in various places, people may have made these points, kind of as a major sort of, I, I guess, kind of linguistic or, or kind of uh, terminological move, I hadn't seen it in the, in the literature I was familiar with. So I felt it was something that the book builds on and, and develops in an interesting way and hopefully will be a, a fresh thing for people who are reading. And, and, and it's not it's not just something, sorry, I was just going to add one little point. It's not something that's, it's not just something that um, is at the beginning of the book. And I say this, it's, it's something that kind of, as the book proceeds, it's a point that gets returned back to that. Oh, and here we see why there's this distinction of language in this passage or that passage. So I try to sort of embed it in the later kind of uh, parts as well. Mm -hmm. So if we come back to this idea of natural law and how social justice relates to society, but also, of course, the individual, and then there's the question of, well, how does the individual know what the law is? Yeah. And so some other keywords you explore is fitra and nabua. Mm -hmm. And so could you say a little bit about what those two terms have to do with justice and how it relates to this idea of the individual knowing how to behave? Yes. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I think the concept of uh, fitra, fitra is kind of means the natural state of human beings. Um, I think this is a really important concept for, for the Quran and for, particularly for ethical sort of uh, discussion of the Quran. Um, within my book, uh, I argue that um, the, the Quran definitely treats human beings as capable of kind of moral knowledge um, before the revelation comes. So the Quran obviously emphasizes the revelation because it is, you know, it, it is a revelation. It conceives itself in that in those terms, but it's still, it's still in in my reading at least show sort of demonstrates that there is this kind of knowledge of right and wrong at least at some level um, before the sort of uh, before the, the the revealed book uh, comes to human beings, and and I don't treat this as a kind of supernatural sense um, that is kind of this sort of super sense, but rather that human beings are kind of able to in their kind of through sort of ethical reasoning, um, through their sort of ordinary sensory experience, ha have an awareness of right and wrong, which which correlates to something that you know is, in some sense, there in in the world and in the in the relationship between human mind and 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 and, and sort of worldly experience. Um, so um, then you might get the argument. Um, this is when Nabuah comes in. Well, why do human beings even need prophecy? Uh, and this is a and this is a question that gets asked, particularly in a sort of theological tradition, um, uh, you know, um, sort of by anti-realists, by people who say, well, actually, human beings have no moral knowledge from the world. There's nothing there, but rather you need revelation in order to provide any moral knowledge. They will say, well, why do you need prophecy at all? And I guess that my answer to that, from my reading, would be that that prophets are centers and assistants to human beings. They're guides. They also give details of how to worship God and how and and certain aspects of what god wants from human beings that maybe aren't rationally kind of appreciable so you know it could be ritual matters it could also be sort of finer details in a particular context so um you know so i try to sort of and this is a very materidian thing basically um to try to toe a line between saying um there is moral knowledge human beings do have this implicit understanding um and at the same time there's a place uh, a necessary place for prophecy as well and it's a kind of uh, so it's a kind of um, it, it is in a sense a balancing act, but I think it if if you can articulate that it becomes a kind of very nuanced approach. And what it allows is it allows an appreciation um, of kind of shared human experience on a social level. So I talk about how the Quran sort of 
says that the, this this ethical dimension of human life isn't just something for the Muslims, but it's something that extends to other traditions, to other people, um, just just on a basis of sort of their their humanity. So I think that's that is you know even in our time is is an important message to be able to sort of deliver, and I think it is one that's very true to the Quranic picture as well. And so uh, I think I think that that's a um, you know the, the 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 value of kind of looking at those terms that you mentioned. Uh huh. And so, in addition to things like ethics, which the Quran speaks about extensively, and you focus on in, in the book, obviously, afterlife is also something the Quran speaks about quite a bit. And you you make some connections to this. So, could you say, like, why why is the afterlife relevant to thinking about a just society from a Quranic point of view? Yeah, I mean, I I have this idea um, of the what I call the moral narrative, which is basically to say that human life um, within the Quranic picture uh, has this kind of broader context, um, you know, um, you know, a, a, a whole story, which is, you know, it starts in a kind of primordial sense before even the, the worldly life and extends right through the, the worldly life to, to the, to the afterlife or to the hereafter. And, um, and I think that it's really important to sort of contextualize Quranic ethics within this broader picture, that human beings have this destination, that there is more than just this world. Uh, and I think, you know, part of that is is that it will, you know, there's going to be these consequences, you know, obviously of rewards and punishments for, for ethical action. Um, uh, and, and I think that when you read the Quran... Uh, you you know the, the Quran is very concerned. Like the, you know, it, it, probably a, a page or two doesn't go by in the Quran without some reference to these kind of uh, eschatology and 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 the sort of the, the events of of the afterlife in some way or some allusion to that. And so you can't sort of div- uh, divorce those aspects from the kind of worldly ethical rules or uh, uh, um, kind of uh, values. You have to sort of read it in that light. And I think I try to sort of bring those things in, as you say you know within sort of the 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 sorts of passages that i look at i will emphasize those sections too and say well this is how it relates to to the um to the ethics i mean i remember um uh something that i, I took from uh from uh Professor abdul halim actually was this emphasis of the way that the quran embeds its its rules within stories within um within discussion of the afterlife you know it's, it's this total package um it's not sort of separated out as its own sort of section, uh, but it's just sort of embedded everywhere. And there's a reason for that because it's, you know, an encouragement. You know, the Quran is is acting to kind of try to encourage. It's not just trying to say this is what good action is, so you know it, but it's trying to encourage the the audience or its readers or its you know um, uh, addressees to act in a certain way. And so these things have a powerful function, obviously, in in, in its rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And I mean, connected to this, like the continuity of, you know, this life and the next life, you, I think the organization of the book is really helpful because your, your different sections look at the main ideas of justice that we can understand about this world. And one of those categories is political justice. And what, what is, what does that category mean in the Quran? Yeah. Um, I found this question of political justice, um, a very challenging area to study in the Quran, because unlike some of the other spheres that I, I look at, there are there are many, there or there are much fewer um, sort of direct rules for political life. And when there are kind of very explicit injunctions related to political life, they tend to be very 
uh, much connected to the particular life of the Prophet Muhammad, um, peace and blessings be upon him, and also on, um, you know, on that immediate first community. Um, and so, you know, one way that I, I um, sort of try to get around this and still um, excavate a kind of political justice dimension to the Quran was to look at kind of previous narratives um, that are in the Quran, the kind of stories of the Quran uh, as sort of paradigms. And I think that actually, that in a sense, that this is where you get the major material um, for discussing politics is within looking at these previous narratives and how they work and just getting this kind of level of the sort of values of the kind of tendencies of political life. Um, but um, I didn't... Um, um, uh, I didn't sort of end up affirming from the Quran any particular political program that I think is there. I think, you know, someone may read something in or may use the Quran to d- develop their political thought. That's fine. But in terms of there being anything explicitly there, I didn't think so. But I did uh, affirm a, a, a notion of, of Khilafa or Khalifa, but in a very general sense of kind of stewardship of the earth. That there, you know, and linking back to this idea of uh, the fitra and so on, that there's that it is a kind of requirement for human beings to 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 sort of um, be able to, you know, if there's a reality of power and political life in some form of human society, then there becomes a responsibility to kind of um, exercise any power one has in a just way, or even in in, in a sense, certain aspects of of social order may need. Um, some some sort of kind of authority, right? So at least the, from the Quranic perspective, there's nothing sort of inherently wrong with 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 authority or with power, but it has to be uh, done justly, it has to be uh, administered in a just way. Um, and actually, one of the inspirations for the book was actually the, the Republic of uh, Plato and um, kind of some of that whole idea of you know different spheres and different um, aspects of of, of 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 how should we define justice came from my reading of, of the Republic and my interest in, 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 in those ideas. Um, but I would say that, um, um, overall, um, uh, you know, th- when I come to this idea of natural law, I, I kind of go against the sort of Hobbesian notion of a state of nature as being sort of violent and, and chaotic. So I, I would say that, um, you know, that there is a, there is a sort of, if there is any state of nature, it's, it's, it's one of sort of harmony and peace, although that might, may actually never, you know, not be realized in practice, but, Ethically, there's no the Quran does not present a picture where humans are kind of inherently violent and 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 um, and, and um, uh, kind of uh, chaotic and and so on. But rather that there, there's that there's that temptation is there or that danger is there as a sort of a threat. So that so you have the, you have the initial story of Adam, um, you know, and 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 his wife um, in the Islamic tradition, Hawa or Eve, um, you know, they're 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 down on the on you know they go down to the earth and there's this idea that there's going to be this um uh potential for corruption to, to creep in but initially it's it's it you know they're they're honored individuals and you know uh you know after repenting for their for them uh, what they did they are kind of given us a, a sense of kind of leadership and in the islamic tradition certainly considered as as, as, as prophets um uh, or as props sorry as adam as a prophet at least um and then you have um the also the, the biggest issue in early sort of muslim history is who should take over um, the leadership of the community after the the Prophet Muhammad, and this becomes a hugely contentious issue between the sort of Sunni and and Shia sort of tendencies in early Islam. Again, from the Quran, I didn't see any definitive argument for that position. So, although you know different cases can be made, but you know, and and, and of course, you know, both Shia and and, and Sunni 
uh, groups will go back to the Quran and try to and read the Quran in a certain way. But I, I found the Quran leaves it open. And, and it's almost as if, from, at least from the point of view of, uh, of what the Quran says, this is something that's been left up to the Muslims to, to organize themselves. So as someone who's written a book about this subject, uh, if, you're, if you're trying to convince someone who might not be generally open-minded about the Quran, which of course could be a futile exercise, but just as like, for example, what would, what would, or not one person in particular, but just like people, what would you say, like, what is the relationship between violence and justice? And what does the Quran advocate or expect or even warn about? The the question uh, of, of war or, 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 jihad even is is obviously a very hot topic uh, i think however that if a reader um puts these these verses that do relate to warfare in perspective um you know and, and by perspective i mean other verses of the quran and also the historical context of the, of the time i think they will find over, overall it, it's, it's balanced um and, and and what i mean is that um uh, you know, you will have verses that encourage Muslims to battle and fight in various ca- uh, cases, but they're in, in, invariably framed around fighting against oppression or, or people who have broken treaties. Um, so it's, there's kind of a realism uh, to the to, to the Quranic message. You know, it, 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 of course, it's idealistic in, in you know in in want, you know in calling for the best and, and so on. But there is a realism in things in, in these aspects of politics and in, in, in particularly in things like warfare. And there's also a consistent message to incline to peace. So the Quran will consistently say, but if you can find peace, then peace is best. And, you know, and if you can make a treaty, then you should and so on. Um, so, so again, so, so, so I read the Quran is as not as a pacifistic scripture, but as implicitly uh, outlining a kind of just war theory. So, so what I mean is that, um, you know, if that, you know, there, there are different possibilities, you know, there's a, there's a, a desire for there to be peace between groups Um you know, ideally defined in kind of treaties to kind of bind it in a sort of legal framework, and even you know in alliances, you know, with people with others, that, you know, the other, you know, you can trust and so on. But um, but there's also um, when if if there is sort of persecution or one is attacked or you know these kind of things, then then a military response can be can be appropriate um, in in those terms in order to kind of um, you know uh, defend or or to to remove the injustice. Now, I think. We also should consider in this regard that warfare in the time was not like it is today. Um, so that the casualties were much smaller. The just, it, you know, we're not talking about catastrophic uh, destruction with the, mod- the sort of technology that we have. Um, also, battles would 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 very often take place out of civilian areas. They would. So, so I think you know, even you know, what what the reality of what war has become, you know, in in modernity is completely a different picture than obviously. Uh, in the time of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of sort of pre pre modern era, and especially actually in the in the Quran in this particular time, you know, we're talking about these kind of relatively sort of small scale skirmishes um, happening, you know, often between kind of between sort of warriors and so on, and not not kind of the, the situation that we have, you know, uh, in in kind of in in warfare and conflict today, which is you know completely. Um, devastating effects, you know, with, with with hundreds of thousands and millions of people being killed. Um, so, you know, I think obviously, you know, uh, I think the Quran is, you know, does have this mixed picture on this, but it does embed its discussion on war and peace within this kind of 
broader vision of justice. And so I think that the, a, a, a skeptical reader should at least become familiar with that. And if they're not convinced, they're not convinced, but at least they can be, be aware of the kind of bigger picture on that. Right, right. I mean, I think you, your last point is, <clears throat> can't be overemphasized, right? If they're not convinced, they're not convinced. And some people, you know, don't want to be convinced or, you know, looking at context, like that might be anathema to some people. But I just think it's such a hot topic, as you point out, that uh, I'm glad to hear your thoughts about that. And so I think it's like very easy to understand. So I'm going to throw you a question that students might ask me, and we'll, we'll come back to the issue of teaching and pedagogy uh, as we close. But it's the idea that, like, I think it's easy to imagine that to have a just society, you need uh, communication between different political entities, and whether that results in diplomacy or war, that's, you know, those are different consequences. And then you get at this idea called distributive justice, uh, which focuses a lot on money, financial transactions and trade and uh, charity and interest. And so I think some students, I can see them being like, geez, you should keep religion and money separate. And, you know, that's starting to like hard to wrap my head around. But what why, why is it so important in the Quran that this distributive justice in the form of financial fairness is such a salient point? Yeah, I mean, I think that is again, it's a major uh, theme. Uh, I make it one of the main parts of the book, um, and, I, and I, I cover quite a few things in there. I think that the key idea in terms of money is that, again, because human beings are can sort of conceived as these stewards of, of, of God uh, on, the, on the earth, that, there's, that although there is in the Quran, a kind of right to private property, you know, that money is, is, is acknowledged and, and property is acknowledged. However, it's not an absolute right that, you know, if you have property, you, you can do what it do anything you want with it. But there's a kind of a, a delegated responsibility that exists within sort certain sort of uh, uh, values and, and norms. So for example, certain transactions, you know, um, uh, uh, would not be allowed because they're considered to be un, uh, unjust transactions. Uh, and so here you have the the riba, which is kind of uh, you know somewhat similar, like somewhat translatable by usury, um, or you know um, is is kind of mentioned there. Uh, secondly, um, there's this um, requirement for a you know for for a kind of obligatory charity or obligatory alms, which is the zakat, um, and this is uh, comes from standing wealth. So it's not a kind of income tax, but it's from your standing wealth. So if you imagine. Um, what's kind of happening there is that you can't just stay static. Your wealth can't just stay static if it's above a certain amount, um, and and you have to, uh, you know, this is not necessarily the details of this are not given in the Quran. But the, the principle is that if you have wealth, um, you cannot just kind of gather more and more and more, but rather a sort of set amount has to come out, and it has to flow back into society. Now, um, you know, this is you know, kind of if you consider the sort of inequalities in the world today. Um, we're talking about kind of these top billionaires or stuff. We're talking about um, huge amounts of their money would every year have to go. And obviously some of them at the moment, it's very much, you know, if you happen to be a th- th- uh, philanthropist, then you may give a lot of your money to charity or to good causes. But if you're, if you just want to be, keep it all to yourself, then there's n- no kind of uh, nothing stopping you uh, doing that. So within the kind of Quranic picture um, at least on the kind of moral level, and this is actually, you know, becomes instituted within the kind of community uh, law as well, like in a, in a kind of legal social level as well. Um, you know, by the end of the period of, of revelation, it becomes this kind of defined legal 
sanction, you know, that you, that you mu- that people who have wealth must give something back. So I think that um, the picture here is that um, there is a certain uh, responsibility to other people in society, and there's a certain um, uh, kind of um, positive ju- sort of um, justice that needs to be established. If you want to, if you have this, there's no point having this vision of the just society and this condition of justice if there's no way to establish it. So uh, one of the m- means for this is, you know, is, is is for a certain amount of community wealth to go back into people in the community that need it for various reasons. And there's a, a breakdown of that as well. So that's the kind of overview. Uh, obviously, within every sphere, you have different injunctions, different, you know, is this, you know, there's a whole book, uh, uh, you know, there, and, I, and I've written, you know, many, several chapters going through the breakdown within the Quran. So, you know, I, if people are interested in these ideas, I mean, I try to explain things in a kind of uh, clear way. And, and and again, I think this is something to mention is that in every area that I look at within the Quran, I'm trying to sort of unpick these kind of underlying wisdoms, what I call the, the hikmah or the, the kind of um, principle or wisdom of that particular area. So I'm trying to say, I'm not just saying this is what the Quran's rules are, but why is that particular rule uh, intended to achieve justice in in that in that particular context and so by doing that i'm hoping that you know it could spur thinking about well how could these principles be useful you know in, in the contemporary world and you know for muslims today to think about and and and, and generally for readers to think about muslim or not or, or not to uh, what's the quran really getting at in terms of these sort of the values and ethics um so that's kind of um comes there and, it, and everywhere else i try to do that Right. And in the near the same section, you also talk about marriage. And I think, you know, for people that think carefully about what marriage is, you know, it's obviously a deeply social institution. But again, I'm, I'm thinking from the perspective of people that might not, you know, study religion carefully or, you know, these types of things. I think marriage can often be, you know, thought of as like, you know, two people love each other and then they have babies or whatever. But the, yeah, the Quran places it in the social context where husbands and wife have certain, you know, social and personal obligations to each other. And I think what you get at, which is helpful, is that this isn't just related to the people. This is like about how society functions. So why is why is marriage tied to social justice in the Quran? Yeah, um, I, I think that what you have in the Quran and it's, it's potentially a, another controversial subject in some senses, is you have this, uh, you have the, the vision of the human, the, the marriage tie, which is really a kind of, you know, a, a, a building a building block of kind of society, according to the, the chronic um, sort of vision, because it's what ties families together. It's what sort of makes family work. Now, in terms of how it does this, it's very much responding to, the particular context of Arabia, uh, North Arabia of the time, and kind of what was going on there, what were the, the, the expectations of marriage there. And the Quran is actually trying to re, um, respond and reform those particular practices and present this uh, a, a new a new picture, a new settlement, as it were, between husband and wife. Um, and I think that this kind of pragmatism is one of the reasons, arguably, you know, the, the Quran was so successful um, in, 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 you know, in you know, in, in, in its in, in, in his, the spread of Islam and in people's adopting the religion is because it was able to to deal with the issues that were uh, of relevance uh, for the time. Now, um, uh, you know, I look in the book at the kind of potential life cycles of the marriage. So the kind of the, the so-called contract and the responsibilities and parenting and so on. And then also 
well, what happens if there's marital strife and and and, and what about divorce and so on, uh, widowing. Um, but um, one of the things that I found that was most interesting is that in it's in the issue of marriage that the Quran discusses the concept of what's ma'aruf, which is basically is a word meaning well-known or, or customarily accepted more times than anywhere else. So in the most, you know, anywhere in the Quran that this idea of, of what's kind of known amongst you already or what you're already familiar with or customarily kind of uh, accept is, is there in, the, in, in, that, in that marriage, in those marriage rules. And it's again and again emphasized. It's very, very telling when you read the Quran. And what, I, what that suggests to me, and what I, I mentioned this in the book, is that there's a possibility of the acceptance of a wide range of different marital arrangements based on the customs of people. So um, I think the, the Quran, yes, it gives a particular function and, and so on in its rules, but the, the, the whole discourse is very centered around, ultimately, this is a human level thing. This is a cultural, customary thing that, 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 that yes, there's a religious and a spiritual dimension if you're, uh, you know, uh, believing uh, people and, and so on. But it's also related to how human beings live their lives. And so I think that um, as long as the ethics of justice are retained, there are a lot, there's a lot of flexibility in, in the Quranic discuss, discussion around marriage. And I think this also makes sense when you consider the Quran sort of call as a universal call that could be sort of uh, lived anywhere in the world sort of thing, that it has to have this uh, openness to different different ways of doing things. So I think that that's kind of a, a could kind of answer some of those kind of questions about, you know, why, why, why is marriage kind of mentioned in the Quran in this way or discussed in this way. Mm-hmm. And so going off this idea that, you know, at least in the modern world, marriage is connected to the state and that's not necessarily true for, you know, Muslims who make it married Islamically, but not civilly or what, what have you. But one of the other ideas of justice you get at is corrective justice to the extent that, you know, someone has to enforce things, whether it's the state or some other entity. And so what, what is corrective justice and what are public crimes and private crimes, which is, are some categories you look yeah, at? Uh, corrective justice in my kind of vision uh, or reading is, is a situation when the social order has been disrupted by some kind of uh, moral uh, or legal transgression. Uh, and so the corrective justice is how can this be put right? So if, you know, obviously we, we, we'd like to live in a world where people don't do things that are wrong and that harm other people, but that's not the world we live in. Uh, and actually, even from the Quran's own perspective, that's kind of inevitable in that the life is a test and that these possibilities are always there. Now, what um, I, I sort of say is there's the different, there's a kind of process to the corrective justice in the Quran. If you sort of take from, you know, all the different places where, where the Quran discusses this, um, I, I look at a process with several degrees. So the, the most important value is on the on the sort of in, in terms of relationship with God is this idea of repentance that the person who has done wrong should be should repent to God in in within their worldly life. Um, and for the per, from the point of view of the victim, sh- the 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 victim should um, what they should be focusing on is forgiving the um, the perpetrator. Right. So this is a kind of ethical uh, standard that the Quran. At the highest level, wants you know people to repent and obviously to feel sorry for what they've done to their victim, but particularly repent to God and the, um, the, the forgiveness from the victim. And then you have a second level or a second aspect, which is the idea of um, some kind of um, um, reparation or, or some kind of compensation being given to the victim. 
Um, and finally, you have, um, uh, you know, sometimes uh, this could be instead of a punishment or sometimes it may go along with a punishment. It just depends on how you interpret the, the verses and, and so on. But then you also finally have a punishment, um, which is, you know, which is also, you know, it can have a social function of kind of deterrence or it can also have a kind of, um, uh, this is the main one, um, or it also could, um, the, 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 you know, the threat of the punishment, obviously, um, or the sort of the reality of the punishment could be a means for this repentance if it wasn't, if the repentance wasn't made already, then maybe it would be made then. So this is the kind of picture overall. Now, how this breaks down, and it's obviously too kind of, uh, there's a lot to it, you know, in, in, the, in the two chapters that I write on this, but I, I break this down into public and private crimes. And this is kind of instead of a kind of more famous classical breakdown amongst jur- jur- Muslim jurists, which is between the, the so-called Qasas and Hudud. So what you will get in, um, in in the classical theory is that you either have the um, the Qasas, which are kind of meant to be these crimes against other people, and then the Hudud are these crimes that are kind of against God. And so they kind of they, they look at that in this way. And, and I felt that that didn't quite kind of hang together as a theory, even though it's very well established. And so what I try to do instead is to argue for a different breakdown, which is basically the, a public crime, which for me is is the you know basically in the Quran murder and sort of brigandage, which is kind of you know social kind of um, uh, 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 kind of uh, could be robbery. It's kind of like um, uh, chaos, you know, and 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 you know, kind of a, something that you know um, was quite common in the sort of pre-modern era um, when there's less of a kind of Law, law and order or it might be even common in places that are you know outside the kind of um have a weaker kind of government and 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 um police system but um uh, these these are public crimes because they happen in the public square and if, if you're a victim you know what people when someone murders someone there's no way that the authorities can't become aware of it there has to be funerals there has to be um you know inheritance there has to be all these things that come from that um and likewise in brigandage it's, a, it's directly against the authority of the government in a sense right it's kind of like a internal war within a, a state or in a, a community and so um because the governments um uh, have to be because the governing authorities have to be informed then the forgiveness aspect of that um, part of uh, you know from the from the point of view of justice has to be done at the state level or at the governing level that if there is going to be a sort of forgiveness, it has to be done in in the public sphere and with the representatives, you know, to some extent of the of of, of the um, in the govern- governance. But when something and is a private crime, what we're talking about here is things that happen not necessarily in, in public. So I, in the Quran, I mentioned thievery, so stealing in things, uh, uh, um, also um, fornication, um, which you know, or, or you know, if it's someone's married, adultery that would be, and um, slander. Right, which is in the Quran particularly relates to slandering someone based on accusing them of of fornication when they when they uh, you know haven't been doing it. Um, and what I say is that these because these are private crimes. What the Quran is basically saying is that you can the forgiveness for that can happen at the private level, and it also do, draws on some of the context of the 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 you know the, of the time of the uh, of the Quran's revelation and and some of the Hadith reports and so on. So I try to bring some of that in to give a context for for what's going on. And what and what that means is that um, there doesn't necessarily, if 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 forgiveness happens at the private level, it never goes to the authorities, and, and no punishment is is given. And so this can be an in, important thing when obviously you know some of the kind of the Quranic punishments, you know, uh, they're well known, um, uh, you know, and people may take, in, especially in our modern times, would maybe take issue with those punishments, right, um, or, or find them in some in some sense inappropriate or something. So um, um, 
be that as it may, as it may, what I'm um, saying is that the the Quran itself isn't saying that these definitely have to be imposed, but rather that within um, within the private sphere, there, these things can be ironed out amongst people without having to without those things having to uh, happen, and those are only a kind of last resort at the sort of level of when uh, the governance authority gets involved. So that's kind of um, roughly what, what I argue in the, the, the that last part of the book. Well, that's really helpful. And I'd like to connect something else that you write uh, late, later in the book with this, this idea, and then we can, we can start wrapping up. And so on page 194, Dr. Harvey, you write, what is the exegetical tradition except a succession of scholars reinterpreting the meanings of scripture in light of their own horizons? And I'll qualify that by, like, obviously you're not saying, you know, people are just like willy-nilly and like whatever, and, you know, you're obviously, like, very careful in citing your sources and explaining things. So I see this as, like, a big-picture reflection that's asking a really serious question. But if we go back to this idea of, you know, use the example of warfare, like, warfare 1,400 years ago is very different than today. And so how, how would you – how do you make sense of, like, what's considered a crime and what are appropriate punishments for crimes? And how how is the reader of the Quran supposed to understand how to apply these ideas to whatever context yeah. they're in? Um, I mean, these are massive questions. Um, I would say, you know, in terms of uh, the quote you, you read out, um, you know, the tafsir tradition and just broadly, you know, Muslim intellectual tradition has always developed and changed. And this is something that is, uh, you know, in, in history and it continues to today. And what I mean is that there's always... There's always a room for new op- opinions to, to 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 emerge and to become adopted, and at the same time, there's great respect, of course, for previous viewpoints. So it's a there's a kind of t- um, continuous process of like filtering, generating new ideas. Do they get accepted? You know, what arguments can there be for them? How and how do do our own um, uh, you know perspective on the material in in the Quran and on in the tradition change over time? So um, you know. The quote you mentioned, um, I, I'm drawing on some uh, on Gadamer's idea of the horizon. So we all, you know, as I said, we all have a, a certain vantage point that we're on, uh, or that we're we're within, and we are always trying to make sense. Given that we're not able to, you know, sort of find an absolute meaning, but we we we, we and we can actually, you know, from the point of view from 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 a Muslim's point of view the Quran as a divine communication has the potential for infinite meaning. So really it's about trying to give the best, the best meanings we can in our time in, as you say, in a, in a rigorous way that's defensible and that sort of joins up. So when you come to these major level, you know, ethical uh, uh, discussions or, 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 you know, jurisprudential debates, you know, I don't have any sort of simple answers. What I would say is that, um, you know, uh, if my contention would be, if we are able to um, have some implicit or, or, or you know, um, natural ability to see what's right and wrong, as I've argued with the idea of fitra, and we also have the guidance of the principles of um, of scripture, you know, and, and from the tradition, and also, you know, and, and I've tried to articulate some of the Quranic principles in, in my book, then it may be possible to to engage a hermeneutic that looks at some of the classic rules and says, well, do these match the realities of our time? And does there need to be an adjustment um, in order to meet those deeper purposes? So I think if you have a nuanced approach, like a theological approach and an ethical approach, and you're able to sort of 
join up and uh, uh, the idea of rules to a sort of deeper wisdom. And I'm and I think that this can be done in a in a, in a way that's 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 um, superficial, and it can be done in a way that's just um, you know changing the the, the law to whatever uh, seems you know, conducive to current thinking or whatever's popular in our particular society. I think that's a, uh, to be avoided. But if someone is to, to be serious in their ethics, in their ethical reflection and delib- deliberation, in their knowledge of the text and in the, the, the times and context of societies, then I think there's a place for new interpretations to emerge uh, uh, in, in that kind of very rich way. And this needs a kind of, it needs to be a very, a very, you know, it needs to be a whole movement. It's not, it can't just be one or two people having a few ideas, it should be something that's, you know, uh, engaging whole, you know, subfields of study, you know, and I think this this is beginning to happen, or it has been happening for a while, uh, in various ways. And, you know, there needs to be a continued engagement with those ideas. And, you know, you will see uh, uh, changes and um, renewal and reform happening in various ways. So I think it's an ongoing uh, uh, reality. And the my perspective would just be to try to, um you know, do things in a, in a, in a way that's joined up with the kind of broader theology and hermeneutics and so on, not just, uh, in a very kind of legal focused way without that wider uh, or larger picture. And so on this note of, you know, thinking about big challenging questions and how to go about answering these types of things, which again, I think the, the book does really well, especially because it's so well organized, but also, you know, very, uh, heavily documented with your your sources and what have you. Have you had a chance to use this text in your teaching contexts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I teach um, a kind of uh, a course on contemporary Quranic studies uh, at Ibrahim College, and um, one of the things that I do on that that course is look at kind of um, you know contemporary interpretation of the Quran and also sort of that what's what we could call the ethical turn. Um, you know, in modern, in, de- in, in sort of recent decades, a, t- a turn to looking at Quranic ethics. And there's a number of interesting figures. Um, you know, you have an interesting uh, feminist discourse, which I go into um, as part of that. People like, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Kishia Ali um, has written really interesting work on um, uh, on sort of the Quran and, 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 and ethics and so on. And, in, and, and I hope that my book um, can sort of have a, a place in that discussion as well. Uh, as an example of kind of ethical interpretation of the Quran. And so, yeah, I I sort of take the liberty of doing like a one week where we look at something from my book and discuss it and so on. And obviously it's the easiest uh, uh, seminar to prepare. So that's, that's good as well. Uh huh. Have you had a chance to talk with non-academics or non-students who have read the book to get their impressions? Like, especially since it talks about a lot of, hot button topics just from like a global perspective of people that might be interested uh, I, in these things. I, I mean, obviously the, uh, the book is still fairly, fairly fresh uh, from the press. Um, so I haven't sort of, you know, I haven't had the chance to sort of meet so many people that have read it. I hope to carry on doing that. Um, but I mean, when I, when I have um, had conversations with people who maybe are not you know, completely in chronic studies field, um, you know, I have had some positive feedback that they've enjoyed the sort of the level I pitch it. So it's kind of, um, it is, I think, accessible to the general interested reader. Um, while at the same time, it's hopefully, you know, especially in the notes and so on, and the overall framing, it's got the depth to interest the kind of scholarly uh, uh, people and the kind of graduate students and people who are in the field. So obviously, any writing any book is a kind of balancing act um, in that way. But I've I really tried 
you know, with the book to like, you know, include a glossary to include, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, useful notes to define things in a clear way to try to write it in a level that's not assuming that someone is an expert in, in Islamic studies. And I think that hopefully, particularly when the book comes out in paperback, which which should be quite soon, um, that more readers will be able to get access to it and be able to engage with the ideas. And, um, we, you know, I hope they enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, I definitely appreciated the the clarity of of prose, just as the consumer perspective. But I think the the ideas are also presented clearly, which is I think uh, many people will appreciate. So, Dr. Harvey, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Uh, before we conclude, could you tell us a little bit about current projects that you're working on that may or may not be related yeah, sure. to the um, book? Um... At the moment, I'm, I'm working on a second book, which is a, a, a work of constructive theology. It's also going to be published by Edinburgh University Press. Uh, and this book, uh, what I'm doing is I'm taking the Maturidi tradition. I told you that uh, uh, Maturidi's Kitab al-Tawheed is this, such an important text to me. I'm, I'm taking this text uh, and, and, read, and trying to reread it in the light of contemporary philosophy and philosophical theology. Uh, and this is taken in the analytic tradition, also the, the continental tradition, uh, both of which I'm interested in. And, um, you know, I'm looking at things like reason and tradition, epistemology, ontology, the nature of God, and so on in that book. Um, uh, and, and as a kind of, um, because I'm, in order to do that, I'm basically being forced to translate the Kitab al-Tawheed, uh, which is also a very, very challenging thing. But I'm, I'm working on that, and I've actually um, linked up with a, a colleague um, uh, who's out in Istanbul, uh, uh, called uh, Kehan, and he, um, we've, we've kind of decided together to try to work on the translation uh, uh, of, of the Kitab al So that, that's a kind of long-term project that one day we're hoping to release it maybe in two two tranches, like in a volume one, do half of it, and then a volume two. Uh, and also I'm uh, co-editing a book uh, for, for the International Institute of Islamic Thought with um, Dr. Daniel Tutt, um, uh, who um, is an American philosopher, and this is on modern theologies and ethics of justice. And this is a you know, drawing together a number of articles by kind of uh, kind of generally younger scholars who are looking at justice in Islam in different ways and exploring different kind of horizons and possibilities there. So that's an exciting project. Um, yeah, and um, you know, um, going forward, um, you know, I've actually got quite ambitious plans for a whole series of books, which kind of each explore different areas of Muslim thought and kind of build on each other. So the kind of theology book is, in a way, it's going back to what I I've got a whole chapter. Of, on theology in, in, in the Quran and the Just Society, but I can't do everything in that short chapter. So I, I'm trying to building out of that and trying to develop that. And then likewise, I want to do the same for sort of ethics and hermeneutics and so on and so forth. So I'm hopefully we'll be um, uh, busy for some time uh, on these various uh, areas. Yeah, I should say so. It sounds like it. Uh, but I think it sounds like really exciting stuff as well. And it's Dr. Harvey, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you about the book. And thank you so much for joining us. And I'll look forward to keeping apprised of your future projects. Uh, and, and the same for you. It's been great speaking. And, um, uh, and um, I hope that um, uh, people are able to access the book. And I'm very happy to um, you know, correspond with issues and questions raised from the book if anyone wants to get in touch. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Dr. Ramon Harvey, Aziz Foundation Lecturer in Islamic Studies at Ibrahim College in London, and the author of The Quran and the Just Society, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2018. Thanks for listening. <laughs>